0: From California to the New York Islands, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, to the sparkling sands of her diamond deserts, and the wheat fields waving and the dust clouds rolling, let's dig into How America Eats by Clementine Paddleford, with apologies to Woody Guthrie. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human
1: experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food
0: connects and defines us. So, if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm doing really well. It's summertime yeah. and the living's easy. We're just enjoying this beautiful weather, this beautiful time of year, the farmers markets. It's just, it's the best. It's just the best time.
1: How are you? I am great. I just finished our 40th class reunion. And oh, my
0: gosh. That's amazing.
1: Oh, my gosh. We had so much fun. It's interesting. You start the 10-year class reunion, like you're all trying to prove who you might be. And you get to the 40th and you're just like, how are you? How are your kids? <laughs> How many grandkids do you have? What are you up to? You know, it was such an easy space to be in. And it was such a lovely, lovely time.
0: Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah,
1: it was so much fun. But I am exhausted. I am really (laughs)
0: exhausted. (laughs) I imagine. It's funny you mention these things because we didn't have a 10-year reunion. We did have a 20, but it was very informal. Like just I think a couple of people got together and decided like they were going to, hey, we're going to host it at this bar, come out. And I heard about it too late, so I couldn't make it. And this is my 30th year. And as far as I can tell, no one is planning anything. Oh, and cool. I was actually curious. Yeah, I'm curious about whether that's kind of a Gen X thing where we're known for our cynicism and our like, whatever, why bother kind of attitude. But I am a little curious about my classmates. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't mind showing off how badass I become <laughs> in <since> high school. <laughs> but as far as I can tell, we're just not into it. Uh-huh. But I um I do love the idea of a reunion. Actually, we're about to have a little bit of a family reunion ourselves. Now that I think about it, my husband and I are going to Texas to basically have a little sibling reunion with his siblings that he hasn't seen. Gosh, I think it's been, some of them, it's been since before the pandemic. Wow. His sister who lives in England is over with her kids. And so, yeah, we're going to go down and all hang out and bicker and fight and (laughs) play games and be nice. And it's fun. I'm not from a large family. So to me, these kinds of family things are also a fun little bit of Americana. Right. If you will. Yeah. So it'll be good times. I'm actually really eager to talk to them about. Once I have them all together, all right, tell me some stories that I haven't already heard. And even if I have heard them, tell them to me again and help be the keeper of all the family stories. It's what I like about families is let's tell those stories about sitting around the table and the conversations we have as we eat. This is something we've always wanted to do, right? right, you and I. So I'm excited for it. And I'm actually super tempted to bring How America Eats with me on this trip, even though My copy, like, weighs about a billion tons. Mm -hmm. They were military brats. And so they each have big memories of living in different states. And I kind of want to go through these recipes with them and say, hey, is this something that you remember from being stationed in Maryland? Is this something you remember from being stationed in Washington? Kind of get their take, because they all lived in different places at different times, of course, for different ages. I think it spans about 10 years from youngest to oldest. And so much can change in that time. So true. You know, your experience of being in a place at a certain age is different when you're 10 versus when you're 20, for example. So absolutely. You know, when we were planning out our third season's focus on cookbooks, we coyly chose to spend July, the month that we really broadly celebrate American independence with How America Eats. And as I said, for me, this is a massive volume chronicling recipes from every United State with over 500 recipes in all. My revised edition, I'm still looking for an original copy. I need to hit up a couple of bookstores, I think. It does contain excerpts from Clementine Paddleford's interviews, making it an altogether different kind of cookbook and one that we thought was well worth discussing. Mm. Just to summarize, I know we've got some great content on the As We Eat Substack about this, but Clementine Paddleford was no ordinary food writer. She was a culinary trailblazer with a knack for storytelling, and an appetite for adventure. In How America Eats, Paddleford sets out to chronicle the flavors and traditions that make up American cuisine. Published in 1960, book was like a culinary map stretching from sea to shining sea. Paddleford crisscrossed the country, compelling us to discover a smorgasbord of local delights from the heart of the Big Apple to the small town diners of the Midwest. And her book kept rich company. 1960 also saw the publication of the first editions of both Mastering the Art of French Cooking and the New York Times Cookbook, revised editions of The Joy of Cooking and The Good Housekeeping Cookbook, and the eighth edition of The Betty Crocker Cookbook. In short, this is a potent moment for food in a post-World War II America. We're victorious and we're all feeling affluent and hungry. So Clementine fed our appetites for curiosity. She brought us into people's homes, sat at their kitchen tables, peeked into their pantries, and showed us how the other half lives. And in doing so, created a culinary time capsule. And I'm calling it that because the recipes do reflect an attitude towards cooking and eating that shifted radically over the past 63 years. These recipes don't rely on products No one is opening a brand name soup can or making a box cake. Instead, they contain whole ingredients in a proto farm to table manner. And in doing so, the recipes highlight ingredients that largely would have been available to the community where she gathered the recipe with like very few exotic ingredients. And there are some really cool exceptions to that. (laughs) There's a whole thing where she talks about mail order curry powder, which I, I find delightful. Because I can now easily find curry powder in my grocery store. I don't have to mail order it. Right. But I have been there where, oh, how am I gonna find that ingredient? I might have to mail order it. (laughs) Now I can get it on the internet. There is some cost to accuracy in flavor of a sense of unity. And I'm something I'm okay with. Yeah. Anyone could make any of these recipes as a matter of preference rather than means. She's inviting us to try something new by making it more accessible. And sometimes she points out how certain dishes or components transcend borders. For example, Indiana's hickory nut layer cake uses Vermont's maple frosting recipe, and there are at least seven different recipes for potato salad. I imagine that cross-referencing all the recipes that she collected must have been a monumental and incredibly fun task. And maybe she had like research assistants working for her. That would have been my dream. (laughs) Like. You got what? Using what from where? And oh, maybe we could use this. Like I just think <laughs> it would have been just a riot. Before we get to my own experiences with cooking the food, though, I need to give you some context to the recipes that I chose. Although I'm largely a West Coast girl, I've talked a lot about my California youth, and of course, I live in Seattle now. I have an interesting history though with the Midwest, namely the lovely state of Ohio. I went to my undergraduate college, Antioch College from 1997 to 1999, and then went back home to California and came back again to Ohio from 2002 to 2008. I really liked living in Ohio, although, to be honest, I'm glad I live where I live now, because I found so many components of Ohio life to be really fascinating, because it does illustrate this melting pot concept that we have of the United States, but it's all packed into a state that you can drive across within three hours. So a little bit of background. Prior to European settlement, Ohio was initially inhabited by various Native American tribes, including the Shawnee, Delaware, and Miami people, who lived and thrived by trade and agriculture. After the American Revolutionary War, the Northwest Territory was established in 1787, and on March 1, 1803, Ohio became the 17th state, which brought an influx of settlers from New England, Mid-Atlantic states, the South, and beyond. During the 19th and early 20th centuries, significant numbers of immigrants arrived from Germany, Ireland, Italy, Hungary, Russia, and other parts of Eastern Europe. And then the Great Migration during the early 20th century saw many African Americans move from the South to the North, Detroit, New York, Philadelphia, but also to Ohio, seeking job opportunities and to escape racial discrimination.
1: That's fascinating. I had no idea that Ohio was influenced by that many cultures. Right?
0: Yeah. it's a small state. You can probably put a couple of Ohio's in the state of Texas. Uh, You've got agriculture to industry. You've got car making up north. You've got absolute agriculture down south. And it all meets in the middle in Cowtown or Columbus, Ohio, where the state capital is. Got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame up in Cleveland. You've got Cincinnati. It's just this really rich, interesting, different cultures. And it's actually no wonder that it's considered to be a really fantastic incubator for restaurants. A lot of restaurant concepts get started out in Ohio because it's broadly seen as being a place of many different types of interests and tastes. If it makes Mm. it in Ohio, it's probably going to make it in the rest of the country. Wow! Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So... Clementine already knew that she was in for a treat when she was invited to join a church supper at the Magyar Evangelical and Reformed Church on West River Street in Illyria, Ohio. This is a small industrial town on Lake Erie near Cleveland. And I checked Google. I don't think the church is there anymore, although there are many now called Hungarian Reformed Churches in the area still. Unfortunately, I just couldn't find that Reformed Church on West River Street. I did find West River Street, though. Oh. So that is there. Of Illyria's predominantly Hungarian residents, Clementine writes, life for them centers around their church, especially so since 1939 when the Reverend Louis Novak and his young wife Irene came to the parsonage. The Novaks, second-generation Hungarians, sensed a need among their people to keep the best of the old in their cultural background, to blend with the best of the new in their adopted America. These women wanted their daughters, who are beginning to be real American girls to inherit their own talent as cooks. So it was that whenever community support or picnic was in the making, the foods were prepared the Hungarian way. End quote. I remember eating some of these dishes when I lived there. It wasn't like, it wasn't what we had at home necessarily, but because there was, that influence is absolutely everywhere, I picked three dishes that were featured in the special supper prepared especially for Clementine by members of the Dorcas Women's Guild. And now I'm quoting again from Clementine. Quote, Mrs. Alwazinski was making the tiny dumplings, the nokedly, to go with the chicken paprikash. Mrs. Mary Messaros was busy with the sour cream gravy. Mrs. Louis Ignatz stuffed the cabbage leaves and showed me how the ends can be tightly closed to prevent a leakage, all without string or toothpicks. After the grace, chicken paprikash arrived. Chicken was cooked tender but not overdone, and delicate the dumplings. Pass the chicken gravy to spoon over the no-kedli and cabbage meat stuffed. The sour cream sauce, delicious. End quote. This is oh, such, these sounds... are such journalist notes, too. I love it. Right? <laughs> oh. not, yeah.
1: I'm like, I'm ready to make this dinner. Uh,
0: exactly, right? I'm reading about this, this excerpt from her time there. I'm reading these recipes and I'm like, my stomach is full And I'm always hungry anyway, but it was like, it was ready to go. So, you know me, I went for it. (laughs) Prepared to take on stuffed cabbage, chicken paprikash, and dumplings, no kedly all in one afternoon. Basically, I I did nothing but cook for five hours. (laughs) (laughs) The ingredients, no real challenge, right? Right, no real challenge. Chicken, cabbage, paprika, sour cream, sauerkraut, pork, all super easy to source. Even the mise en place was minimal, mostly some chopped onions. Like, not a big deal. But, whoa, Clementine. Where Julia Child was obsessive about describing every micro step of technique, you left me hanging on those cabbage rolls, Clementine. <laughs> Whatever secret technique that she was shown by Mrs. Lewis Ignatz, she did not share. She did not share with me how to do this tightly closed to prevent a leakage, all without strainer toothpicks. I love that about
1: this cookbook, and I think that it really bears a little bit of explanation here, and, and I did cover this in part one of the Clementine Paddleford article in the As We Journal mm-hmm. Online But what was happening from a recipe standpoint is that we were being fed all of these recipes from home economists and journalists who were really focused on the scientific side of food Mm -hmm. and recipes. Paddleford was so interested in the stories. She was so interested in the people Mm -hmm. and she was so interested in not so much how the food was prepared but how it defined the people that the stories were about.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. It swiftly became apparent that a majority of the success of these dishes was just already having the knack for their execution. And I really began to understand, no wonder these Hungarian moms were so eager to make sure that their daughters retained a feel for these old world foods mm-hmm. because some of this is, you learn by doing, Yeah. And (laughs) lack of experience. (laughs) (laughs) So I was able to accomplish the filling for the rolls. That part was not that hard. A mixture of ground pork and beef and rice flavored generously with sweet paprika. But I either blanched the cabbage leaves too long or I didn't shock them enough. And so they just completely shredded as I prepared to roll them. My directions were simply to, quote, place a heaping tablespoon of filling on each cabbage leaf. Roll up by folding the rib end of each leaf up over the stuffing and then folding the top leaf down over it using both index fingers, tuck in the ends of each cabbage roll to form a pocket. End quote.
1: Okay, so I just want to interject here again. We've talked about the differences in ingredients and methods from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Oh yeah. So maybe it was that the cabbage leaves were very different during that time. Very true. From now. So don't beat yourself up too much.
0: Okay. <laughs> if i only been simple, I do struggle with folding burritos and dumplings too. So maybe I should just practice more. <laughs> Everything always spills out. I think I overload whatever it is I'm trying to like roll and fill. I'll just practice. I did have much greater success with the chicken paprikash, which is really a matter of braising chicken in a piquant paprika flavored onion gravy and then adding sour cream at the end. I dished out a serving for my husband, Hector, and while I'm trying to think about how I could possibly photograph the plate in an advantageous way, he runs back into the kitchen to tell me that I've utterly surpassed myself and that he'd award me a Michelin (laughs) star if he could. And I'm thinking, oh, whoa, wow. Like, I've just now tapped into something really kind of like fundamental for him with this dish. I thought it was tasty, but I'd be like, was he just really hungry? And <laughs> I managed to like swoop in with this. It was delicious and it was filling. And so maybe that's half the battle. But I was a little overwhelmed by his, his reaction. Oh, definitely you can make this again. It was so sweet. Alas, the accompanying you nokelly know, dumplings were disappointingly dense. Another thing that I chalk up to my inexperience with dumpling-like foods. I ended up making 16 dumplings from a recipe that is supposed to yield about a dozen, and they were a far cry away from anything either tiny or delicate. <laughs> Mrs. Alwazinski would certainly have collected my efforts, but I think she would have scolded me ultimately into doing it better. I should have been more patient about waiting for water to truly boil before I dropped the dumplings. But they did rise. But the chicken was amazing. You know, I I just I love what you just said
1: about Mrs. Al Lewinsky. And I think that this is the purpose of the cookbook, right? You have met this woman who you now feel like you have a relationship with and you're already projecting what she may have thought of how you made this dish. And I just think that's so fascinating. There is a legacy. She
0: still is being remembered 70 years after this book was published. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm sure she's long gone, but she does. She lives in my head now. Right. I don't blame her or Clementine or any of the other women of the Darkest Women's Guild for not teaching me how to do this. But I do recognize that because we're talking about her No being delicious and light and tiny and tender, that I'm thinking... Okay, well, I just need to try again Mm. to to do this. Right. Yeah. And I
1: I think it also points out the fact that we have to ask our grandmas, our aunts, our moms to teach us those things because they will be lost, even if you write it down, from translating it from the written page to what has to happen are two different things. And I think it's just a really important point that this cookbook also makes.
0: It does. It's funny because you've reminded me that I do have a handwritten recipe in my collection Mm. that I learned from my mom. She got it from a weird, wild summer she spent as a sous chef in somebody's tiny restaurant in North Carolina. She got this recipe for chocolate seduction pie. It's awesome. But there's a trick to the technique that's not written into the recipe. Mm. And so you actually have to know how to make the recipe in order for it to yield correctly. You can follow all the steps, but if you're not very patient about letting the sugar and butter and chocolate milk together, it won't yield correctly. Mm. And I actually forgot about that until this moment. Yeah. The little ways that we have of passing along information, but accidentally or on purpose, leaving <laughs> out the crucial step. <laughs> this doesn't taste like grandma's because grandma forgot or on purpose didn't include the one thing that you're supposed to do to get it right. And we've talked about this, the secret recipes, right? Yes, exactly. There was still magic in the making of these recipes. I was transported back to one of my favorite things about Ohio, the way we'd gather with our neighbors for communal suppers and potlucks, how dishes on the table reflected our varied heritages, whether it was Indian curries from my father's South African youth or German sauerbraten or Hungarian paprikash, each dish was a gift from one to All of us. And I believe that's what Clementine really wanted. How America Eats not only showcased the vast array of dishes that filled American plates, but really celebrated the people and the communities eating this food. Mm -hmm. Coincidentally, someone in my socials asked this question recently What was the quintessential food of Seattle? And for once, I just kept my mouth shut and (laughs) took in the answers. In context, Clementine recorded Seattle Mayor Gordon S. Clinton's family favorite recipes as Seattle oxblood cake with fudge icing, peach glazed pie, and crab meat melts sometime during his two-term mayorship from 1956 to 1964. In 2023, crab did come up as a Seattle favorite along with salmon, but it was easily beat by a new apparent favorite, chicken teriyaki. So I'm really seeing that How America Eats does two major things here. It brings us into American homes, Sits us down at American tables, gives us the opportunity to meet the foods that our grandparents and parents ate before the massive cultural shifts that characterized the second half of the 20th century. And I wonder, though, just as mid-century furniture made a strong comeback, will mid-century menus do the same? It's a really
1: interesting question. Is our food, is our vintage food as interesting as our vintage Furniture, our vintage gadgets, or does our food just move forward? What I thought was really interesting mm-hmm. when you talked about the chicken teriyaki is that it it points to how different Seattle is culturally now mm-hmm. than it was Absolutely. um during Mayor Gordon S. Clinton's
0: terms. Yeah, and one of the interesting thing about Mayor Clinton's tenure that I looked up was that he's responsible for us being a sister city with Kobe, Japan. Mm. Now I am not making the implication mm-hmm. that because we're a sister city, we got chicken teriyaki here in Seattle. But obviously, we have seen a massive shift in population, in food culture. Crab, obviously, we're with our position here in the Pacific Northwest on the water. Seafood is is the heart of Seattle. You can't come to Seattle and forget to have some seafood. Like, oh, I didn't know they had seafood here. That's not going to be your experience here. right? But for the residents, that may not actually be part of our day-to-day life. We're talking about how America eats at home. We're not necessarily also talking about how America eats when it travels. Is a crab milk something that you would only get in Seattle? I would think no, but then again... Maybe it is. Lobster rolls are a huge thing here. They're not quintessential, but they've caught the local culinary imagination for the past few years. Right. But I would fully expect it. I'd go to Maine and have a way better lobster roll than anything I could possibly have here in Seattle. But do you think that it would be
1: better because that's where it originated?
0: Yeah. I mean, chicken's not a quintessential Washington thing. No. Certainly the way it's been cooked and the way we do teriyaki here is also regionally important and special. But then would somebody from Florida be thinking, man, I really want to go eat that Washington chicken teriyaki? Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. But I think we might be known for apples. Yes, I think so, for sure. And cherries. Yep. Overall, in the chapter about Washington, she does mention pies as being big. Because what do you do with those cherries and apples? And I'm kind of curious what kinds of recipes she would be gathering now. Well, you know what?
1: Maybe we need to do the 21st century cookbook, How America Eats. Right. Yeah.
0: I would think so.
1: I, I, I hey, I'm i on board with that too. If there's any patron out there that would love to fund this, we would happily, happily,
0: enthusiastically. Yeah.
1: I would even get my joyfully, joyfully. I would even get my pilot's license and You would, the patron would have to pay for the Piper Cub or something (laughs) similar.
0: I will take that cruise ship to Alaska (laughs) to go meet with the Alaskan fishermen. Mm. I will do that. I promise. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine thousands of people would be on board with a reexamination, examination because I also think it comes at an important time. Agreed. My view on history tends to be that we always think we're in the mess of it, that things were either better before or they'll be better later. But right now, they're just bloody awful. Right. But we are at a point of being highly divisive in this country mm. and having something that points out not so much our differences, it's our similarities. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, I love the cross-references. Use the maple icing recipe from Vermont. Use the lemon icing recipe from California or Florida because in so many ways we are eating the same. Yeah, there's seven different types of potato salad, but we're all eating potato salad. And so it's finding those commonalities that I think are really important and special. And it would be nice to find those again. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat.com. And please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. We'd especially love to hear from you about what you think is the quintessential food in your state. And so you don't miss an episode,
1: subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And right after you talk to your auntie, your grandma, or your mom about that special family recipe and how it's made, if you could take a couple of minutes and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Spotify, we would be so appreciative. It
0: really helps us build the As We Eat community. We also publish the As We Eat journal on Substack. and We would be really honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We give you great content about our shows, deeper dives into ingredients or dishes, and interesting niblets from our great As We Eat community. Please subscribe at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the
1: As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor and a whole lot of passion.
0: <laughs> Parapara, papa, papa,